we're seeing the largest organizations in the world, the biggest companies, the biggest brands, they're all getting involved in crypto Web3 in one way, shape or form, right? And so I would say the future is extremely bright for the industry as a whole, but there's still a lot of lessons to be learned and there's still a lot of experimentation going on, right? I think one thing that sort of everyone agrees on in the last sort of six months is that one of the killer apps of blockchain is uh, like stablecoins. Stablecoins, you can think of them really as they're just a digital representation of a fiat currency. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting edge technology, influential global tech layers, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John and I host the Asian Armature YouTube channel. And I have here today Jordan Forsman, COO of Saibavo. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. So I guess the best way to get started is just ask you a little bit about what Saibavo does and what this company is about. So Saibavo delivers a digital asset operations platform for enterprises. We leveraged our team's extensive cybersecurity experience to build infrastructure that helps institutions securely manage their digital assets with appropriate approval policies and oversight capabilities. On top of that, we deliver various tools and services that help organizations scale up their daily digital asset operations while lowering costs and maintaining a high quality of service delivery. So your clients are not necessarily Web3 consumers or kind of crypto holders, but the companies that service those consumers? Correct. We're strictly B2B. So we service enterprises and institutions that are in turn servicing you know, consumers and retail operators. Are many of these kind of like startups or are they kind of like large enterprises, what kind of range are we talking about here? Across the board. We service clients that, you know, span the full spectrum of Web3 from, you know, scrappy startups all the way up to very large institutions, even, you know, traditional financial institutions that are now getting into the game and everyone in between. Wow, that's actually kind of interesting. It must be really challenging to deliver kind of like the suite of services to all these different customers and needs. It definitely is. Um, all of them have different requirements and different problems that they face. And our sort of mission statement is, you know, to start from security uh, perspective and then deliver services and tools that help organizations scale up their businesses on the blockchain, right? Um, blockchain is different from most types of businesses in that your fundamental problem is how do I manage the private keys? That's what controls my digital assets. If you can't get that right, then you can't scale because you're always going to suffer some kind of setback. You're always going to be vulnerable to hacks and losing those assets. So you lose the assets, you lose the business in a sense. And so you have to start from there. And then once you get that right, then you can think about how do I improve my operations? How do I improve scalability and so on? Usually when I hear something about protecting your private keys or something, you hear stories of someone writing their private key down on a piece of paper or something like that, locking it into some sort of safe like, how does that scale to, like, a financial institution? Yeah, well, it doesn't. So those sort of traditional um, approaches to Web3 private key security are not scalable. And that's exactly the point and the problem. Uh, and it goes even further back to just traditional security. You never write down your password and put it somewhere for somebody to find, right? That's a security no-no. So that from even before, you know, the advent of Web3. But Web3, unfortunately, started to adopt these bad practices, such as generating a seed phrase that needs to be written down. Uh, that A, could be stolen, it could be lost, and then you, you can't recover. So these are all the types of issues and problems that we grappled with in trying to help uh, large-scale organizations deal with the scalability problem. You can't use those approaches and those techniques and, and expect to scale. It's just not going to work. 
How much of that were you kind of making up on the spot or kind of bringing in for traditional cybersecurity? And like, what ways did that have to change? I think a lot of it is from traditional cybersecurity. I mean, there are very, very good cybersecurity best practices that we can adopt in Web3 and that, you know, we are bringing to this space. The problem is not that we don't know how to keep stuff secure. Um, well, the first problem is there's no such thing as 100% security. Um, but we can develop best practices and we can borrow best practices from Web 2 cybersecurity and then implement those in Web 3. Um, I think the first problem is that Web 3 is we're seeing a reemergence of many types of issues and problems that we solved in Web 2. But it's not the same people today that are building Web 3 that built Web 2. Web3 is being built by folks who are getting into the space from traditional finance. They're not, not all of them anyway. Uh, there are many folks that are coming from traditional tech companies and building these technologies, but there's a lot of folks that are coming from finance that have never had exposure to cybersecurity and, and to these concepts. And so they're repeating a lot of the mistakes that we saw in Web2. Uh, but then also, even within Web2 itself, cybersecurity is kind of a very difficult set of challenges, and there's just not enough talent in this space really dealing with it. I think a number from maybe a year ago, just in the US alone, I think there's an, a million open positions for cybersecurity at enterprises in the States. And that's a lot. And so there's just not enough folks dealing with cybersecurity in the world. And then in terms of Web3, even less so. So how does like a company that like is facing, I guess there's like an obvious need, right, in terms of all these million positions looking for cybersecurity, how does a firm come in and just say, or help fix that sort of problem for another company with and like without them needing to hire a bunch of people, right? You're kind of helping with that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just like we develop solutions for companies in the Web 2 cybersecurity framework, we do the same in Web 3, right? So our team, the majority of our sort of leadership team come from cybersecurity background, right? Paul, our founder and CEO, is 20 years in, in cybersecurity. Uh, you know, he's built some of the biggest cybersecurity companies in the world. He worked at Trend Micro as a senior manager of core technology for eight years, and then Chihu360 as general manager of core technology for eight years. And this is really the, the hardcore hacking stuff. This is tracking malicious actors, state-backed actors, you know, folks that are compromising enterprise systems on the daily. Uh, figuring out the tools and techniques and approaches that they use and then developing systems to effectively mitigate those types of attacks and, and try to prevent them as much as possible. And then Tim, our, our other co-founder, is you know very, very well known in Taiwan. He's the founder of two of the biggest cybersecurity conferences here in Taiwan, HitCon and CHROOT. These are both regularly attended by senior management from you know Google, Apple, Microsoft. They fly out given the high quality of the talks here in Taiwan. And Taiwan itself has a very robust cybersecurity industry given the sort of geopolitical situation that we're in. If you think of the top sort of cybersecurity countries in the world, it's obviously the U.S., but then I would say you know Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine. Uh, and these are three countries that have a lot of geopolitical tension, right? And so there's a, a natural need that evolves from that in order to develop these skills. And Taiwan has got great cybersecurity talent and great cybersecurity skills. And myself, I've been in the industry, you know, also 20 years. I was part of a, a startup in 06. Uh, I joined them and, and we built that company. And we also, you know, got acquired by a, a NASDAQ listed company in the States called Proofpoint back in the day. And we were also building systems that helped uh, at that time, sort of the email vector is the biggest sort of threat vector in terms of how uh, attackers are trying to compromise companies. Because if I know that you work for this particular company, I find out your email, I send you a phishing link. That link, you click on it, it downloads and installs kind of malware and stuff like that. That's how I break into your system. So we spent a long time sort of, you know, understanding and really building real world solutions for those issues. And really, Web3 is just another layer of abstraction on top of, you know, existing security issues and problems. 
And so we have best practices. We have methods and models to address the types of threats that are emerging. Yes, they're different. Yes, there's nuance that we've never seen before. But at the end of the day, security is security, right? There are things you can do and things you cannot do. What's an example of something that you've never seen before that's come out of like the Web3? I think the biggest sort of departure from traditional security, traditional cybersecurity and Web3 is that in traditional cybersecurity, the data could be lost. It represents the value in many cases. Like if you lose your credit card number to a hack, Attacker is going to use your credit card number to buy something, but you can always call the bank. Uh, you can get a charge back. You can say, no, this wasn't me, and then cancel the credit card, and that's it. So there's always a means of discourse in terms of, like, what can I do to fix that, right? It, when we're talking about financial value, um, of course, if you lose your private data about, you know, like maybe compromising photographs or things that you don't want out there, you can never get that back. But when we talk about financial value, in traditional Web 2, the data represents the value. But in Web 3, the data is the value, right? So given the nature of the blockchain, if you lose that data, you lose the value. There's pretty much no way you're getting it back. And so the stakes are that much higher, especially because we're talking about, you know, end of November last year, we had a $3 trillion market cap in sort of crypto digital assets. Now it's probably a little bit under a trillion dollars, but it's still a lot of money, right? And so the stakes are, are that much higher and you don't have a lot of recourse. Sorry, I said discourse earlier. I meant recourse. You don't have a lot of recourse in terms of what to do next after an event is, has occurred. So you have to be that much more prepared and that much more careful in terms of the processes, the practices and the tools that you adopt in order to secure your assets. So when you hear about this or that exchange or that organization being hacked, you mentioned a little bit about the email vector. Mm -hmm. Is that what happens with these hacks kind of in a broad sense? Like what went wrong here to have all these funds drained or these loss of assets? Normally, it's a series of events. It's a chain of events, right? And there's a, a very well-known framework that was developed by Lockheed Martin in the U.S. I don't know, about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. It's called the Cyber Kill Chain. And it basically describes sort of the step-by-step -step actions that attackers are going to use to break into your systems. They're going to be doing reconnaissance against your company, find out what kind of tools you're using, find out what kind of technologies are being deployed and implemented and so on. And then they're going to find out about who the people are uh, that are maybe in engineering or are in finance or whatever. And then they're going to find out your emails and then they're going to develop, you know, crafted malware or exploits that are targeting systems inside your company. And then they're going to send that to you like through an email, right? A malicious email, be a, a malicious link or a malicious PDF. You download it, you run it, it exploits systems on your laptop or your PC. And then they will have malware that deploys other malware. It calls out to what we call C2 servers, command and control servers. It'll download more malware. Basically, trying to hop from system to system inside your organization. We call that pivoting. Trying to find ultimately the information that they want or the data that they want. And in, the, in terms of Web3, and specifically for centralized exchanges, what they're looking for is the private keys. The private keys that govern the wallets. Um, that are being managed by the exchange or by the institution. Once they gain access to those private keys, essentially they can initiate and execute transactions and then the money's gone and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, specifically for like, if you talk about centralized exchanges, um, but there's a new sort of class of financial institution that's emerged uh, in Web3 called DeFi, right? Decentralized finance. And this is typically manifested by what we call decentralized exchanges. Now, the difference between a centralized exchange and a decentralized exchange is that in a centralized exchange, you put your money into the exchange's wallets. 
and they're custodying your funds for you. And then you're doing trades uh, on the exchange. And the trades are actually happening in a database. They're not happening on the blockchain. So your trades and everybody else's trades are being matched up in a localized database that's on the exchange. And so that's why we call it centralized. All the funds are centralized. All the trading is centralized. And so that's why they have private keys that could be lost, right? With decentralized exchanges, it's really just essentially a smart contract or a series of smart contracts that are governing uh, how the trades are happening. And the trades are actually happening happening on chain. So instead of depositing my funds into the exchange, what I do is I connect my wallet to that exchange. And then once I've connected my wallet to that exchange through a smart contract, then I execute whatever trades I want. And then the trades actually happen on chain between the wallets. So it's kind of like a P2P kind of thing. So it's a P2P thing, right? So it's decentralized. It's, you know, that's the whole sort of blockchain revolution. So there's no centralized party that's managing all of the funds of all of the traders on the system, right? And so there's no single set of private keys um, that can be stolen. There, what the biggest type of issue we see are vulnerabilities in the smart contracts themselves, right? These are coding flaws that can be exploited. Uh, and so that's when you hear about, you know, DeFi hacks and DeFi compromises. And these can be in the hundreds of millions of dollars it's because somebody's exploited a flaw in the smart contract coding itself to either drain the funds or get the contract to perform in a way that it wasn't designed uh, and then basically steal funds from everybody. So it's a different set of problems. It's not really related to private key security, but of course, it's still a very serious set of problems. And I think right now, DeFi security is probably the biggest problem in terms of the lost value um, that we're seeing versus centralized exchanges being compromised because centralized exchanges have been starting to adopt the types of technologies that we're developing at Cybavo that just seriously improve their security posture. And so they're a lot less susceptible to the types of hacks I described earlier. So does Cybavo serve DeFi company or organizations or organizations that serve DeFi exchanges? Yeah, we do to a degree. What we do is, as I say, we sort of manage the private key uh, infrastructure. And of course, many of the DeFi organizations, they have treasuries of their own. And so they still have private keys that they need to manage and that they need to secure. And so in that respect, we deliver solutions to help them do that. Um, then we've also sort of integrated the ability, for example, to deploy smart contracts within our vault system. And our system, as I said right at the beginning, the core sort of treasury function that we deliver is that we deliver the ability for you to build approval processes into outgoing transactions from your wallet. So say, if I want to withdraw one BTC from my wallet, right, maybe only myself needs to approve the transaction. But if I want to withdraw between one and 10 BTC, maybe both you and I need to approve. If I want to draw over 100 BTC, maybe, you know, there's five layers of approval that need to happen. And then we can also build in each layer. We can say, you know, in this layer, layer two, there's three people that are in the layer, but only two of those three need to approve it. So here you can kind of build a, as the risk of the transaction increases, you can have more and more people overseeing this transaction and deciding whether or not the transaction should be approved, right? And this concept of risk with a transaction, that comes from traditional finance, right? Well, absolutely, right? So it's all risk management and risk mitigation at the end of the day. So that's sort of a core, uh, what we call a treasury function of the tools and solutions that we provide. And that's really for enterprises, for corporations, for companies that are getting into this and wanting to manage their funds. 
But of course, that's sort of, I would say, high-value, low-volume transactions. So if you're doing a payroll through crypto, right, that's maybe once a month, and you have your HR team and your CFO, they're overseeing the transactions, and boom, right, they make the approvals. But obviously, that doesn't work for you know high-volume, low-value transactions like we see in exchanges. If I've got a million users on my exchange, they're all depositing funds into the exchange. How do I manage that? Because those need to happen on-chain, right? So they're depositing funds on-chain, and then I need to know, I need to have an individual address for each one of those million customers to deposit into. I need to know that this address belongs to that customer so that when he deposits, you know, one BTC into my exchange, I can reflect it as a centralized exchange. I can reflect it in the database and then he can start trading it right away because that's where I make my money on trades, right? As an exchange. Then I need to basically make sure that all those million different deposits that I can consolidate that into a secure liquidity pool, right? So that it can be made available to the traders on the other side who've now traded their Ethereum for BTC. Now they want to withdraw that BTC. They weren't the ones who deposited into the exchange, but they're the ones who need to withdraw it. So I need to then, you know, manage, let's say, 10,000 withdrawals every day. So how do I do that? You can't do that manually, right? I can't, I can't have this <laughs> approval process 10,000 times a day. The CFO is approving these withdrawals, right? Right, right. So we built tools and basically security controls and risk controls, an automated process that facilitates, you know, 10,000 withdrawals a day or 100,000 deposits a day for these very large institutions. And that's why I say, you know, we, we serve exchanges, we serve, you know, financial institutions, banks, and, um, you know, custodians, and anybody that has a very large customer base of their own, we have the tools to help them do that scale. So do you provide these tools? Do you serve it for them? Like, or is it kind of like you give them a package of software that they run themselves on their own infrastructure? How does that work? So we deliver ultimately in two forms. We deliver a software as a service. Um, so it's in the cloud. And basically, we spin up an account for you. You log in and you can sort of manage your funds there. But you have full control over those funds, even though we're hosting that infrastructure for you. Our cryptographic architecture is designed in such a way that we have a secure mobile app that you need to use to actually initiate the transactions. Uh, I won't get into the architecture here. Maybe it's a bit sort of technical, but there are multiple components that need to contribute to the act of initiating, approving, and then broadcasting a transaction to the blockchain. And all of these different components need to work in, in perfect unison in order to get the transaction executed. Uh, and so one of those components is a secure mobile phone that uses, again, public-private key cryptography to essentially approve the transaction. So that's when I said we have these layers or these levels of approval. Uh, once it gets to your level of approval, you'll get a ping on your mobile phone via the app saying, you know, hey, John, there's this transaction. It wants to go to that location. This is how much it's from. And this is the reason for the transaction. And then you can basically enter a pin code on your phone that will then send the approval back to our system. And then our system, you know, has the necessary cryptographic components that it needs from you in order to process the transaction. Without that input from you, we could never process the transaction. So what we deliver is as a SaaS-based service that you open these accounts and you sort of essentially initiate transactions, you process them, and then you know we have this 24-7 capability because there's approval through your phone. Uh, we can also deploy a part of the system in your network uh, where the private key material is entirely hosted inside your organization. And we do that sometimes larger organizations, sometimes as part of their cybersecurity policies, they require that. Uh, but also in different regulatory regimes interpret who is custodying the funds based on where the private key material is hosted itself. And so we built that to have the flexibility to cover various different institutional requirements. So when that person, or let's say you work in risk management, you get that ping from that, from to authorize this, 
this uh, transaction. I'm just curious, like, what are, what are they thinking about? They don't just like look at it and say, yes, right? Like, what are they doing before to make to make or to go forward with this? Well, the, the way we've designed the system is that, you know, we have basically what we call role-based access into the system. And depending on what your role is on the system, when we set it up and configure it, that will define what privileges you have on the system, right? So we have four basic roles. And just as a, as a basic overview, the, the first role is a wallet creator. This individual creates the individual wallets on the system and then defines the policies that will govern how that wallet behaves and how it operates. For example, who are the approvers? Who needs to approve any transactions coming from this wallet? Uh, what are the thresholds? If it's, as I said, less than one BTC, then these people need to approve. If it's more than 10 BTC, then those people need to approve, right? Are there sort of, you know, allowed outgoing addresses? We can only withdraw to this pre-configured list of, of uh, external addresses, right? All kinds of security configurations and configurations that we can put into the policy. So that's what the wallet creator does. Then you have the wallet operators. These are the folks that are initiating the transactions, right? So only this person is allowed to initiate a transaction. And maybe that person has constraints. Only this person can initiate a transaction of 10 BTC or less, right? If we want 100 BTC, then, you know, somebody else has the responsibility of doing that. So that's a wallet operator. They're literally the folks saying, I'd like to move funds from A to B. Uh, then you have the approvers. And the approvers are defined in the policy. These are the folks that need to approve. And for different levels and different risks of the transactions, you have different approval chains, right? So for less than 10 BTC, you have this approval chain. For more, you have that approval chain. And then you have auditors. And auditors, they don't really have any executive function on the system. They simply receive a copy of every transaction that occurs on the system. So again, that's more for the sort of basic treasury use case when we're doing high value, low volume transactions, right? And those people, yes, they will receive a ping on their mobile phone, you know, the approvers, and they'll say, you know, John just initiated this transaction and he wants to move 10 BTC from our wallet to FTX exchange. And are you approving it or not? Right? Now, the assumption is that you've been included in this approval chain. So you kind of know who John is <laughs> and, you know, why is he moving, you know, funds to FTX? So we've developed some best practices in terms of how you should set up these approval chains, but we don't limit you in any way. It's up to you and your business to figure that out, right? Um, so that's, again, for the sort of main treasury management thing. But then again, on the other side is the automation. When we are working with exchanges themselves and they're trying to process, you know, 10,000 withdrawals a day, there it works a little bit differently because, again, you don't have somebody that's pressing approve for every one of those uh, 10,000 transactions. There we have a, a much more robust set of uh, security tools and risk controls uh, that we work with our partners and our customers to sort of build the necessary controls to essentially mitigate the risks associated with automatically processing thousands of of withdrawal transactions in a day. I hear horror stories of kind of like malicious inside actors and stuff like that. Like maybe this one guy has knows this one thing and he steals all the crypto or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like how do you prevent that? Like what's the best way? I know it's probably impossible to prevent it totally, but what sort of structures you build to keep that from nightmare scenario from happening? Sure. So um, I think that was sort of the fundamental challenge that we set out to solve when the team was building Saibavo. How the team sort of got together and decided to build this company was that the co-founders in Taiwan, when there's been a, a cybersecurity event. They have good relationships with local law enforcement here and so on. And so often, you know, they'll be approached and say, well, something happened at XYZ company. Can you come in and do a forensic audit? Um, and in, in the case of, you know, exchanges or crypto companies, can you come and do a forensic audit, find out how did the attackers gain access to the private keys and what can they do to kind of mitigate this in the future, right? 
So they did this over and over and over again and saw you know, so, many, uh, so many incidents that they realized, yeah, there's a fundamental problem with how we manage private keys at the institutional level. Mm. And that problem is that there's no separation of the rights to use the private key from the responsibility of keeping it secure. Now, two statistics, right? The first is 90% of cybersecurity incidents are the result of user error, right? Mm. It's just new technologies that we don't know how to use these tech yet, right? There's a learning curve associated with it, and so we're going to make mistakes. We make mistakes, and boom, you know, that results in cybersecurity incident, right? Uh, accidentally, instead of BCCing, you know, my entire customer base, I put them in the CC and then everybody's emails got leaked, you know, to the world, right? These simple types of errors are often the reason that we have a, a cybersecurity incident. So 90% of cybersecurity incidents are the result of user errors, folks just learning how to use this new tech. The other side of that is that 30% of successful cyber attacks are perpetrated by trusted insiders, which is coming to the point that you raised, right? Uh, and that that is typically trusted insiders are folks that have some kind of technical know-how or capability, right? Or some privileged access to things. So if we go back to Bitcoin white paper 2008, you know, the whole thing is just a wonder of amazing engineering and a lot of thought that incorporates game theory, uh, really deep cryptographic knowledge. And I mean, we can spend hours talking about that. And fundamentally, you know, building a very large network that is, you know, only susceptible to manipulation when 51% of the network agrees, that's the ultimate sort of democratic process, right? Uh, and that builds a lot of security into the network itself. However, it does nothing for the individual and his management of his own private keys. And so that's fundamentally where you still have an issue. Because the blockchain was designed for individuals like you and me to transact over the web in a trustless manner, right? And if we lose our private keys and we lose our Bitcoin, we lose our crypto, nobody cares. This is your own problem, right? But for the institution, that obviously doesn't work because the funds, the assets, they belong to the organization itself, not to one individual. So who should be responsible for managing these private keys then? In traditional finance or in traditional operations, it's the executive or the finance team that have the authority to transact with the company's assets, right? But unfortunately, these folks have no cybersecurity knowledge or training, typically, right? And so they will get fished, they will get scammed, they will get hacked, they will lose these private keys. And yeah, there's lots of horror stories where folks have been fished or scammed and they lost their private keys, they lost all the funds. Or somebody, one individual had all the private keys on a USB, he was the only one who had the password to it, he died, and yeah. now you're stuck, right? There's, yeah. a, there's a great uh, Netflix uh, video about that. So what institutions kind of did to respond to the situation is that they handed the responsibility of safeguarding the private keys over to the engineering teams, the IT infrastructure teams, the cybersecurity teams, and say, well, you guys understand this, so you take the responsibility of it, right? But the problem there is, as I said, you know, 30% of successful cybersecurity attacks are perpetrated by trusted insiders. So I'm not saying that engineers and cybersecurity people are bad people. In fact, they generally are not. However, you give them the private keys, they could potentially use that privilege to steal the company's asset. Or, you know, accidentally use the mainnet private keys when they're running a test in some product that they're building. And instead of the testnet keys and boom, you know, due to a bug, they've lost, you know, $10 million. So it was this issue. There's no separation of the rights to use versus the responsibility of keeping it secure. The rights to use the private key should always remain with the executive, with the finance team, with the folks that are, you know, responsible for overseeing the assets of the organization. But then give the responsibility of securing the private keys to the engineering, cybersecurity, and infrastructure teams, right? So that they can still build the things that they need to build. Uh, and so that's where the issue lied, because all of the solutions that you see in the market today, whether they're cold wallets or hot wallets or custodians or whatever it is, HSMs, they don't solve that issue. Uh, and so that's the issue we set about to resolve. And so we built a proprietary cryptographic architecture that, you know, uses multiple components 
that need to work together in order to affect the full transaction from initiating the request all the way to approving to broadcasting to the blockchain. And so that's what we do. Through this mobile phone, you can give the CFO the mobile phone to approve the transactions, whereas your finance team is the operator initiating the transactions. But the folks that are deploying and maintaining the infrastructure are your engineering team and your IT infrastructure teams, right? So the system has been set up to do that, to separate that rights of use from the responsibility of securing. And that way, now if you get that right, we can build all kinds of tools that are going to help you rapidly scale up your operations on the blockchain. And so that's what we do. So Saibavo started out, you just mentioned at the end of your statement, like they started out doing this architecture to hold Mm -hmm. these to basically separate the rights to use versus responsibility to secure. What's the next step? Like what are you guys building out here? Yeah, sure. Because our team helped a lot of organizations respond to hacks and go do the forensic orders for them and kind of advise them. Those organizations became our early adopters, our early customers, right? And some of them were exchanges, some of them were custodians, some of them, you know, were financial institutions. Um, So we originally deployed the first versions of the solution with them, and they were using it effectively to secure the private keys, which is the fundamental value proposition, right? Keep the private keys secure. Then on top of that, they said, well, okay, now, you know, we've got a problem in that, you know, we're trying to manage 100,000 deposits every day on chain. And how do we securely move those 100,000 deposits into one secure location, right? Um, That's an operational issue that we're struggling with. But we need to still keep those funds secure, right? Um, So then we we developed a solution for that. And then they said, okay, well, now we need to facilitate 10,000 withdrawals every day, but in a secure fashion. So we leveraged our cybersecurity expertise and built a solution, a tool for that. And then they said, well, the incoming funds, they could be coming from, you know, money launderers or drug dealers or bad people. We need to know if it's coming from a bad person so that when we consolidate those funds into our secure liquidity pool, we're not, you know, including those bad funds because then our whole pool gets tainted, right, by these malicious funds. So then we built integration with, you know, security checking solutions and what we call transaction monitoring solutions that are out there on the blockchain looking at all these addresses and identifying whether or not they've been associated with hacks, stolen crypto, money launderers. You know, the North Koreans are famous for this. They have, you know, units that are out there specifically hacking into exchanges and DeFi locations and things like that really to fund themselves and their operations. And there was a DeFi protocol called Tornado Cash Mm, Um, recently that was um, blacklisted by the SEC in the States um, because they had identified that a lot of funds that had been stolen from crypto exchanges had then been recycled through this tornado cash to try and hide the provenance of these funds, the origin of these funds. And they said, well, this thing is just being used to launder money, right, by hackers that have stolen funds. So anything that goes through that tornado cash system, by definition, is tainted, right? Right. Now, there are a lot of people who disagree with that. And, you know, I'm not going to weigh in on that (laughs) argument right now. But the point is that potentially those funds now are are tainted, right? Because it's been recycled, it's been washed through that system. And so if it has been, and you are accepting funds into your company that has been blacklisted by the SEC, and in fact, it's OFAC, which um, is the the Office of uh, Foreign Assets Controlled in the States. And basically, if you are accepting funds from a sanctioned address, you're breaking the law. Really? Yeah. And you could face a huge fine, you could face jail time. But right. you can't have, you can't control whether... But you, you know, can't control if somebody's sending you in funds on the blockchain, right? right? You can't reject or refuse a transaction the way banks do. 
Right. You can't say, no, I don't want this money. So what you have to do is you have to, first of all, know about it. Well, somebody sent me funds from a sanctioned address. And then you have to be able to effectively quarantine those funds. You need to freeze them in place so that you can freeze them in this address. And then you can go and submit what we call an SAR, a suspicious activity report, to the local you know, uh, financial intelligence unit, the FIUs, that you are reporting to. So in Taiwan, it would be, uh, I think it's Jingguanhui or some, somebody like that, right, which is the uh, local Taiwanese uh, regulator. So you need to have the ability to do that, right? And so, again, that's another tool that we developed for our customers. So if somebody does send you these tainted funds, you can automatically freeze those funds and then kind of quarantine them out and make sure that your main funds, your main liquidity pool is not tainted by that so that, you know, the SEC or whoever doesn't come in and say, right, stop your operations for six months. We're going to do an audit. And that's the end of your company, right? So it's all these types of operational challenges that we build tools for um, to help our customers really effectively scale up and, and protect themselves, protect the assets, protect their business and then help them lower their costs associated with ramping up. What happens to those funds once they're quarantined? Um, once they're quarantined, typically what you'll do is you sub submit a suspicious activity report and then if you get a response from the regulator, and sometimes you don't, depending on which regulator you're working with, they will designate what you need to do with those funds. In many cases, uh, funds are... Um, I've forgotten the, the I've forgotten the English word for it, but the the funds are basically taken by the police or by the you know the authorities, and then at some point in the future they'll actually be auctioned off, right? So if you look what happened with Silk Road, when Silk Road got shut down, uh, I think it was the FBI. They basically commandeered those funds. That was the word I was looking for. They commandeered <laughs> those funds, right? Uh, and then they held them in stasis for a while, and eventually they auctioned that off, that Bitcoin, or they'll sell it on the open market, right? Or they'll sell it in a private market, whatever it is, but they'll get rid of it at some point. Well, that's what's happened in the past. I'm not saying it always happens that way. So, like, you know, what's the state of Web3 right now? We had this big run up in values. You mentioned mm -hmm. $3 trillion in market cap. Now, it's not exactly a $3 trillion anymore. Mm -hmm. So, like, mm -hmm. what's going on right now in, in the ecosystem? What's kind of the state of the union there, based on your perspective? I think um, it's still very nascent in terms of mainstream adoption, right? But it's definitely happening. We're seeing the largest organizations in the world, the biggest companies, the biggest brands, they're all getting involved in crypto Web3 in one way, shape or form, right? And so I would say the future is extremely bright for the industry as a whole, but there's still a lot of lessons to be learned and there's still a lot of experimentation going on, right? I think one thing that sort of everyone agrees on in the last sort of six months is that one of the killer apps of blockchain is uh, like stable coins. Stable coins, you can think of them really as they're just a digital representation of a fiat currency, right? And right. the biggest one, obviously, US dollars, right? And a stable coin, all it is, is really it's just a protocol. It's a new protocol for affecting the transfer of value of $1 in the case of USD-based stable coins. And that protocol is operational 24-7. So unlike the traditional banking system, it doesn't sleep on weekends and, you know, holidays and things like that. It's a lot faster. It's a lot cheaper because there aren't, you know, a million middlemen involved in the transfer of value, specifically like when you talk about cross-border payments and things like that. And so there's a lot of value in terms of that application of blockchain technologies, right? And I think we're just scraping the surface in terms of what we're going to see being developed. But then there's also things like NFTs, right? And NFTs, I mean, they were they were made popular in 2021, sort of last year. And it was really sort of the art world that was driving this, uh, the art world and, you know, gamers and things like that. That. Uh, but then we started to see the emergence of like NFTs that are representing sort of in-game assets, right? And so you can only play this game if you've got this one particular NFT, right? And so it has huge value. And, you know, there was a game called Axie Infinity, which blew up sort of last year. And there were a couple of things that just happened to work at the same time 
One was the adoption of NFTs in blockchain, so blockchain gaming or GameFi, right? Uh, it's not decentralized finance, but it's gaming finance. And what emerged was you had a lot of folks in um, sort of Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines, Thailand, and so on that were out of work because they're such heavily tourism-focused countries. A lot of their GDP is based on tourism, but due to COVID, nobody was traveling. And so a lot of people found themselves out of work and then they started to play these mobile games, right? Like Axie Infinity and realized, wow, they can actually make money off of this because you're earning tokens as you play this game and then the tokens can be sold for real money on an exchange. But you need an NFT to play the game in the first place. And there's a limited number of NFTs. So as more and more people started playing the game, the value of the NFT, which also could be traded on the open market, got more and more expensive, right? So to the point where it was a couple thousand dollars to buy one of these NFTs in order to play the game. And that's way beyond the reach of, you know, your average worker in the Philippines who's been working, you know, at a resort or, you know, like whatever that is, it's expensive. And so they couldn't afford the NFTs. And so what the community did was they started to build these guilds, just like gaming guilds. And they said, okay, well, what the guild will do, the guild will buy or invest in the NFT and will lend it out to you so you can play the game but then you pay me 25% or a percentage of whatever tokens you earn so this whole very robust very um, uh, sophisticated financial ecosystem was developed in like six months it was crazy fast and so now you know you have uh, you have guilds that are popping up everywhere that are helping manage these digital assets within these ecosystems uh, building sort of financial infrastructures and folks that are making a living or playing games so that's one sort of emerging thing that happened in the last year right now you've got you know active Activision, Blizzard, and, you know, the big gaming guys that are getting involved with this and looking at this and saying, well, how do we take advantage of this? So I think there's a huge future in that. Uh, but then also NFTs themselves um, can be used for things like managing your identity. I mean, you could manage digital identity through a wallet or you could manage it through an NFT. Um, you could manage it uh, for things like... Um, if I have an NFT that I bought for, you know, a band that I love, and that NFT is going to stay persistent on the blockchain forever, I'm the only one that owns that particular NFT, or maybe it's a group of NFTs. Every time I go watch that band in concert, I get special discounts, I get special treatment, I get maybe a backstage pass, whatever, because I have that NFT. And it's basically, you know, something that I use for the rest of my life to get value out of it. I could sell it to somebody else on the open market, right? And actually, the band that issued that NFT, they could get a cut of me selling that NFT because it's all controlled by smart contracts, right? It could be. So there are these amazing applications and use cases that, again, we're just scratching the surface. NFTs and tokens are going to be used to represent everything from physical property to equities to loans, all of it, because you have this programmability in the smart contracts itself. So again, it can offload so much of the cost associated with doing business uh, in the world today. We call that transaction costs, right? In economics, the transaction costs are the costs of doing business of things that I don't know, right? So like the first time you and I do business, I want to tell you about this great technology that I've invented, but I'm worried that you're going to go and tell somebody else, my competitors or whatever. So we have to sign an NDA first, right? And th there's a cost to doing that. It's time, it's effort, it's paper, right? <laughs> so there are all these types of things um, that... Uh, the emergence of this class of digital assets can actually help us resolve. And we're just scratching the surface. There's a lot of things that have to come right before we can really adopt this in the real world. Uh, regulatory issues, you know, uh, security issues, right? These smart contracts are criminally vulnerable uh, in many cases, right? How do we manage, you know, cross-border? So there's all of these things, but the world is grappling with that and coming up with solutions to it at a rapid pace. So I think the state of Web3 is just on the cusp of an explosive growth in adoption. And what role do you see Taiwan have? 
having to play in this future growth and like what leadership role can Taiwan take? I think Taiwan is in an amazing position because, first of all, security is a massive issue, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, and as I said, Taiwan has amazing uh, cybersecurity talent. There's the first thing, right? Taiwan can be a leader in terms of determining the right solutions to securing this sort of Web3 ecosystem, this Web3 environment. Um, but more than that, I told you about payments, right, and and sort of stable coins and all of that. Uh, Taiwan's also in a u- unique position there in that we have an open democratic capitalist economy um, where you're free to go out and do whatever you want, mm-hmm. you, know, league, you know, within the confines <laughs> of the law to go out and experiment and build businesses and do that. And not a lot of um, Asian countries have the type of freedom that we have in Taiwan, right? right? And the ability to really build, you know, very robust, high technology industries uh, the way Taiwan does. Um, Some of them are catching up, but still Taiwan is is way ahead in terms of sophistication, right? Mm. Uh, But trade in Asia is picking up, right? Mm. More and more and more. 30, 40 years ago, it was maybe Taiwan and Japan that were the powerhouses in terms of real sort of manufacturing and trade, right? Right. And it was facilitated through Singapore and Hong Kong, but they were really just facilitators of finance. Correct. Um, the actual work was being done by Taiwan, uh, Japan. Uh, then China came into the mix, right? And China sort of became a powerhouse, the world's factory floor, as some people refer to it, right? right. Uh, but now they're losing that out, losing that out to Vietnam, to India, um, other Asian countries that are really sort of emulating what Taiwan did, what China did, you know? But they're all using different currencies. They're all they're mm-hmm. all speaking different languages. They all have different approaches to trade. Right. Uh, they have different approaches to uh, foreign exchange management. Uh, and so there is so much red tape bureaucracy and difficulty in facilitating trade in Asia. Right. And I think this is why Taiwanese companies and you know, a lot of the business people that I've met in Taiwan, they're really good at this, at navigating these sort of environments and, and these difficulties. And other countries are not, mm-hmm. right? Because they're just getting started with this. Right. And so the, the opportunity here is for Taiwan to start adopting, I would say, these stablecoin cross-border payment infrastructures to deal with, uh, you know, business partners that you have in India or Indonesia or wherever, pay me in a stable coin. Like, let's figure that out, right? It just makes your transaction flows that much more effective and efficient, cheaper, less middlemen. There's less uh, red tape and bureaucracy, as I said. Of course, you still need to do it within the confines of the law for both parties, but it just makes things a lot easier and a lot faster. Then the next level of that is, well, we can build smart contract escrow uh, clauses into this trade financing, right? So I'm going to have a smart contract that pays you 10 percent when you send me, you know, a loading dock goods have been loaded onto the ship. 50% when the ship crosses, you know, some <laughs> line of latitude or longitude, and then another 50% or 40% when it arrives here. Yeah, you yeah. can govern all of that automatically, right? So I think Taiwan in its sort of leadership position in terms of global trade um, really has the opportunity to take advantage of what is being built. And there are already companies in Taiwan that are doing that, you know, building sort of cross-border trade payment facilitation and really exciting and interesting things. And I think blockchain can really help smooth that over. There's a lot of efficiencies that blockchain could bring to that. And I think Taiwan is a leader in global trade. So, yeah, take advantage of that and make that something that we can build in the future. Wow, such an exciting space and really fascinating company. Jordan, thank you so much for coming into the studio and talking to me and to the audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you.